First Peter, First Peter chapter two, First Peter chapter two, and we're we're going to hit new things today. But let me just overlap a little bit, starting at verse six. For this is contained in Scripture, First Peter chapter two, verse six. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Let me read verse Verse, uh, um, verse 8 again. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. They stumbled because they were disobedient to the word. God has given us his word. Remember, all of nature is defined the scaffolding of nature, that, of the universe that holds it up, is held up by the power of His Word. The Word of God holds this together. And it says, They stumbled because they are disobedient to the Word. First, they were disobedient to the Word, and as a result of that, they stumbled. Disobedience came first, And as a result of that, they stumbled. They stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. You will be appointed to doom. Now, we can read that in the sense of of, uh, uh, this being well-ordained. But what is certainly ordained is if there is disobedience to the word of God, there will be stumbling and there will be a doom of destruction. To believe what he is speaking about, the people that he is referring to in this chapter, at this moment, he is referring to people, he's referring to people who were disobedient and disbelieved in the stone. They and they were they they uh, they were rejecting this cornerstone and God kept putting it back. It says the stone which the builders rejected, this became the, the, the very cornerstone. So remember, they rejected it and God pushed it right back. This stone has always been symbolic of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible uses symbols, but it is consistent in its use of symbols. And it says they stumbled, for they are disobedient to the word. They stumbled because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. It is the scaffolding of the universe. When we are disobedient to the word of God, there will be stumbling. There will be problems that come in life. And this is why when I, when I share the Word of God with people, I bring them right back to Romans chapter 9. And I always conclude on this, on this verse. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 9, uh, verse 10, where it says that, that, um, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the key. This is what has been written on the heart. There are verses in the Bible from the Old Testament that are quoted again in the book of Hebrews chapter 8. It says you're not going to have to teach 
everyone their ways. Um, the law of God is going to be written on their hearts. And what I see that is written on the hearts of human beings is the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of the resurrection is already written on the hearts. That's why when I share with people, I know that I don't have to convince them of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They just go through the evidence. And, it, it, and it, it's already written on their hearts. It's already there. But as far as the rest of the Bible... I don't try to convince them of Adam and Eve. I don't try to convince them of, of even a virgin birth. No. I don't try to convince anybody of that when I'm leading them to the Lord because that comes in time. So if you look, for example, in John chapter 7, verse 17. John chapter 7, verse 17, it says, If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's from God or whether I speak from myself. It is when we are willing to do the will of God. When we do the will of God, then this teaching is underscored to us that this is from God. That which is written on the heart is the truth of the resurrection. There are many other things in the Bible that it is hard for a person just who is an unbeliever or a brand new believer to take hold of. That's true. It's hard for them to take hold of. But as we obey the word of God, then we become more and more able to see that these things are really of God. These patterns are true. These patterns are precise. What God has written is going to happen. If anyone is willing to do his will, then he'll know of the teaching. Whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself, Jesus says. So he says this, and he says that without obedience to the word, without obedience to the word, there is stumbling. Uh, Mike, I mean, something, something happened. My picture kind of went away. I, ca I came unpinned. There we go. All right. Um, so with, without obedience to the word of God, without obedience to the word of God, there is stumbling. There's stumbling. And... and um, he says, he says, for they stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. We are doomed if we disobey the word of God. We are utterly doomed if we disobey the word of God. The first thing about obeying the word of God is to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we shall be saved. This is the beginning of it. This is the beginning. Just as, as we read in John chapter 3, verse 36 last time. For all those who believed, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And this is to all those who disbelieved, they are condemned already. It says that, that, that uh, uh, if we are obedient to the word, this is where it starts. Then he goes in on in chapter 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and to, into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, and now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. So in verse 9... He talks about the priesthood. Now remember, he is speaking to believing Jews. These are Jews that, that are the remnant 
the ones who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's, they're aliens in the land. They're living in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. And, and uh, uh, he's writing to them. And he's encouraging them. Now, as far as the priesthood of all believers, that is underscored to us in three different places in the book of Revelation. So all believers in Jesus Christ are part of this new priesthood, the priesthood of the believers. Here, we know he's directing this specific teaching to, the, to, the, uh, to these believers, these believing Jews who are, are the remnant. And we know this because he says, but you are a chosen race, uh, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In fact, we know that the church is, is a no nation. He t- told us in the book of Romans. The church is a no nation because it's made up of many nations. The church is not a race. The church is made up of races of all different people. That's what we are taught. But Jews in the biblical sense are a race. And, and he's speaking to them. And that's why he says that you are a chosen race. He chose them at Sinai. They are, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. What's this royal priesthood? Up in verse 5, he called them a holy priesthood, which means that they could go into the holy place in fellowship with God. Now he calls them a royal priesthood. I thought, I thought priests were not part of royalty, and they generally were not. But there were two that are. And the first one was Melchizedek. Melchizedek in the Old Testament, he was both priest and king of Salem, and to him... Abraham offered up offerings and gave him a tenth. Uh, a, 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 to, to him, Abraham offered up a, a tenth uh, of, of, uh, of the spoils. And then it says of Jesus in, in the book of Hebrews, which we've already covered, that he was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek because Jesus is both king and priest. Very, it was really good that, that the priesthood was not part of the royalty. Because so often that, that uh, um, the, the prophets kept, kept the, the documents of the times because royalty would have a, a uh, tendency to rewrite history. They do it all the time. When I was consulting for the Department of Defense, and it was, uh, we were discussing the, the war between, between uh, uh, Great Britain, between the UK and, and Argentina and the Falkland Islands, which occurred, oh, about... Uh, 40 years ago, so, so 35 years ago, so many of you don't, don't even remember it. But um, uh, so what they were saying is, is that the British just totally rewrote history about, about the account of that and, and, uh, and, and how that happened. So what happens is, is the people in charge have a tendency to rewrite history. But that's why history was never kept by the kings in Israel. History was kept by the prophets. The prophets kept the history. And so that's how we have an accurate account of what was happening. That's how we have an accurate account of the, the dastardly things that royalty was doing in Israel. And so Jesus was both, the, uh, both a, a, a king and a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he says, you are a royal priesthood. So he brings them into this. He says, you're a holy nation. Again, the, the church was not an, is not a nation. It's a no nation. He says, you are a holy nation. They became a nation at Sinai. You are a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now this verse 9, many people like to quote the first half of verse 9, saying that you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
But there's a second half to verse 9. And the second half is, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The second half of this is, you're not called in Christ just for your own pleasure. You're called in Christ for a specific purpose. You're called in Christ for a specific purpose, and that is for the proclamation of these things. We are called in Christ to proclaim the things of God. I wanted for so long, I mean, I remember even even shortly after I was a new believer, I was trying to tell people about Jesus. And I was not very good at it. Nobody was coming to the Lord. And when they were, when they were rejecting Jesus, I'd get angry, which made it even worse. And, and uh, uh, so I was not good at it at all. But I tried and I tried. And for many, many years, I tried to tell people about Jesus. And I would see like maybe one person a year, one convert a year from this trying. I mean, for decades, just trying. It was hard, but I tried and tried, and I, I, I wished I had had a gift of evangelism, but I never had that gift. And, uh, and, and then I, I really started, it, it frustrated me. So maybe about five years ago, I, maybe a little bit more than that, but I, I really started trying to see how did these great men of old preach the gospel with such effectiveness. So I started reading the writings of George Whitfield and Charles Spurgeon, and, uh, 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 and, and also John Knox, uh, the things written about John Knox and how he preached the gospel. And I'd read it over and over again. So, for example, uh, uh, the, the, I, I read the evangelistic zeal of, of George Whitfield probably a dozen times. I read um, uh, a book about, about Charles Spurgeon, and I, I forget the, the title of it, um, but... but um, was it? Um, but anyway, the, this book by, by Stephen J. Lawson on Charles Spurgeon, I read that at least 50 times. And you're like, come on, how can you read a book 50 times? You pick it up 50 times. <laughs> read it. It's a short book, and I've read that book 50 times. And you say, well, why would you do that? Because I was trying to figure out how this guy did it. And it helped me so much because I learned that evangelism... Is not, it's not methodology. Every time I had attended an evangelism uh, a seminar on evangelism, it was all, it, it, it was all some protocol, something you go through, some method that you use to share. Share this first, share, and then you start looking at George Whitfield. You start looking at, at Charles Spurgeon, and they offer no methodology. There's no method on how to share. They talk about weeping for the lost. They talk about having your heart broken for the lost. Where these men were praying, Lord, if you're not going to bring converts through me, then take my life now. Raise up somebody else. Take my life now. These men were really serious. It was all getting back to the heart of the individual who wanted to share. It wasn't the methodology. And so, so often now I see people coming to the Lord when I share. And people will say, what's your approach? How do you do this? As if I'm going to read the same verses you read and it's going to happen. It doesn't happen that way. Billy Graham was special. I mean, this man 
so poured out his life for Christ, that man could stand in a stadium and in 25 minutes, he could have thousands of people coming forward. And you think, well, that was just all of the flesh. No, I had met many people, many people over the years that came to the Lord through the Billy Graham Crusades and were continuing to walk with the Lord for decades after that. Anybody else could have gotten up there and said the same words. They would not have had the same impact. Because it's not just the words. It's the individual and the depth of their relationship with God. And how they've wrestled through these things. That that's what has the impact. God doesn't just blindly take these words and, 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 and have it have, have power through people. Yes, the word has power in that it's defined the universe. But the individual speaker of the word, this comes out of a depth of relationship and a seriousness with God. And this is what the scriptures are talking about. So listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 20 through 23. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some." I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This is the seriousness I'm talking about. He says, to the Jews, I speak to them as Jews. I use their law. I take the Old Testament, and I start pulling in these verses, things that are going to draw them in. To the Gentiles, to those who are not under the law, He says, even though I'm not under the law myself, I will use the law of Moses and I will use that to bring Jews in to the kingdom of God. To the Gentiles, those not under the law, I will speak to them as not under the law, even though I'm under the law of Christ myself. I'll become all things to all men. To the weak, I'll become weak. I'll do whatever it takes to see people coming to the Lord. And this is exactly what he's doing. This is what he says. And this is what Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield would do. George Whitfield would be preaching and he'd be weeping when he's preaching. This guy had tens of thousands of people around him and they could hear his voice. And you're like, oh, come on. I mean, you've got a microphone and, and, and you're just barely reaching us here in this gymnasium. This man could reach tens of thousands of people with his voice. And this was documented by Benjamin Franklin. So... So George Whitfield had revivals in England. He he went back and forth 13 times he crossed the Atlantic. He had revivals in in the colonies in the 1700s. He had revivals in the mid 1700s. It was said that his face was better known in the colonies than the face of George Washington. He would speak to tens of thousands, and it was documented by by, uh, Benjamin Franklin writes how he didn't believe it, that tens of thousands of people could listen to one man speaking. His voice was so strong. So Benjamin Franklin walked on the perimeter of this huge gathering, and then he estimated the number of people per square unit area. 
And he, I, I forget what it was, but it was something like 30,000 people were hearing him because I was on the outskirts of this and I was hearing him. Benjamin Franklin writes this. And he wasn't particularly friendly to the Word of God. And he writes this. These men were anointed. They had special powers because of the way they poured themselves out. So George Whitfield would be preaching and he'd start weeping. And people would say, why are you weeping? He said, I'm weeping for you because you're not weeping for your own souls that you're going to hell. I'm weeping over your soul because as I look out at you, I know where you're going. He says, that's why I'm weeping. These men were passionate about this. It's from Charles Spurgeon that I learned if somebody shows interest in the Word of God, you don't set the appointment three months out to meet with them. You meet with them right away. That's why when people send me an email that they, they want to get together with me so that I can tell them about the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. When unbelievers write to me, I will verify, do you believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ? If they say no, I say let's set up an appointment. And I will generally set it up within 24 hours. I will set up that appointment to meet with them. Because your window, your window of opportunity is not very long. They're beginning to show interest. You go immediately at that point. I learned that from Charles Spurgeon. The passion of these men, that I do all things for the sake of the gospel. To the weak, I'll become weak. I did prison ministry for 10 years. I spoke to men in a maximum security prison every week. Every Monday night, I was in a maximum security prison. And I'd go into the prison, walk across this long yard of men, go into the unit, and past all their, their, their cells, and then their cells would be open at that time when I would come in, and then they'd give me a room, and the men would come in that wanted to be in that room. And I'd speak to them differently than I'm speaking to you. I would teach it in, in a different way, because these were men, many of them had very little education, and, and from the background that they went through, I will do whatever it takes. I will speak to educated people, highly educated people, differently than I will, will to, say, a person that doesn't have a high, high education. I'll address it a little bit differently. The message is the same. The gospel message is the same. But I'll, I'll approach it a little bit differently. That's what he's saying. To the Jew, I approach it as to a Jew. To the Gentile, to those without the law, a little bit differently. He says that he has placed us in this position. He's given us the, 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 your, 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 uh, a royal priesthood. Not for yourself to go around. Yeah. I'm a priest. No, it is for somebody else's sake. For somebody else's sake. That's what he's saying. He says, I've given you this so that you may proclaim, in verse 9 of First Peter chapter 2, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The most fun thing for me the most fun thing for me is to see a person come out of darkness and into light. I remember the day that I came out of darkness and into light. I remember the day that I prayed to have Jesus come into my life. And I remember what He did in my life on that day. How my life changed. How I had been addicted, addicted to pornography from the age of 14. And then at the age of 18, when I gave my life to the Lord, that addiction broke, which was amazing. That, that doesn't happen with many people. But God had used that addiction to convict me of my sin. And He used the deliverance of it to show me His power. 
And for weeks I was smiling, and it was that smile that, that alerted the Christians that, hey, this guy's gotten saved, something's happened to him. I remember that day when I came out of darkness and into light. God has a day when he calls us out of darkness and into light. It is the most fun thing for me all week to see somebody come out of darkness and into light. I would rather watch that experience of somebody getting saved, somebody coming out of darkness and into light, than watch a football game, than watch an MMA match. I mean, anything. You name it. I would rather watch somebody get saved. That, to me, is the most exciting thing. To watch somebody coming out of darkness and into light. Because I know, when I see this, I know that this person has just been snatched right out of the hands of Satan. He's like, he just got taken away from me. And boom, placed right in the hands of Jesus, where he or she is now eternally secure. I love seeing people snatched out of the hands of Satan and placed into the hands of my Lord Jesus. Because then I know that they are forever secure. And so I want to see them get into a Bible study. I want to see them get into daily meditation in the Word of God. Because this is what takes a person and begins to build them up in the truth. This is what he says. He says they... Uh, uh, Call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what you're doing. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do everything for the sake of the gospel, whatever is needed. You look at Paul's life, he was constantly going around in dangers of, in, in the country, dangers in the city, dangers from his countrymen, da dangers uh, along the road. He, he was in, in multiple shipwrecks. I mean, wasn't one shipwreck enough, Lord, to really teach him what you wanted to teach him? Apparently not. Put him through multiple shipwrecks. A night and a day he's spent in the deep. He just gets done with a shipwreck and he's putting wood on a fire to warm up and a snake jumps out of the fire and latches onto his hands. A viper does. It's like, Lord, I mean, how much to the poor guy? And he just shakes it off on the fire and the people think, wow, he didn't even get hurt and it opened up a huge ministry opportunity. Everything, he used it as a ministry opportunity. He's in prison and he writes to the, to the Philippians, since I've been in prison, all these false preachers have come up and they're preaching all these things that are not right. He says, but, ah, Christ has preached. You know, it's happening. He didn't even let it discourage him. He just went on. He just went on. Everything, everything for the sake of the gospel. He's thrown into prison. In, he's thrown into jail in Jerusalem after saying like one paragraph and, and, and the Jewish people there just got so upset with him when he said, I, I go to preach to the Gentiles, they, they, they tried to kill him. So he gets thrown in this jail and Jesus appears to him and he says, you've solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness in Rome also. I solemnly witnessed? I said like three sentences and I got thrown in jail. He said, no, that's good. I, th I thought that was, I, you did a good job. Now I'm going to bring you to Rome. He didn't tell him you're going to spend two years in Caesarea before you ever set out to really going to Rome. And then on your way to Rome, you're going to go through another shipwreck and you're going to have a viper bite you on the hand and all the stuff you're going to have to go through. God doesn't bother with details. He just sent him. He just sent him. He doesn't tell us all the details we're going to go through in life. But he says, you solemnly witness to my cause in Jerusalem, you're going to witness in Rome also. And, uh, and uh, 
So you, you, you see, it's, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's preaching of Jesus Christ. Because he takes us out of darkness. He takes us out of darkness, in, call us out of darkness into his marvelous light, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. This is Jesus who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You, we are to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. You can never proclaim Jesus enough. It is through his death that it's opened up the door for us to come to God. We could never approach God. God is too holy, too great. We could never approach God. It's only because of Jesus, only because he opens the door for us. It's only because we stand in Jesus' shadow that we can speak to the Father. It's all because of him. The excellencies of Jesus Christ, the stone which the builders rejected, this has become the chief cornerstone. They rejected it, God put it back. He says, this has become the chief cornerstone. This is what I'm telling you about, he says. We do all things for the sake of the gospel. If you want to speak to people about Jesus, you have to get serious and take this seriously. I'm telling you, I read that book. In fact, I just read that book by Charles, that talks about uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon. Okay, here's the title. The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon by Stephen J. Lawson. The Gospel Focus of Charles Spurgeon. It's a thin book. It doesn't take you long. It's on Audible, so you can listen to it while you're working out. I went through that book again in the last one week. Just this past week, I read it yet again. So, so like every few months, I pick up that book and read it again, and I'm I just like, I'm ready to go. Because when I read about the passion that these men had to speak the gospel, that's what turns me on fire. When you take it seriously, if you want to be effective in proclaiming his word, it's not going to come easily. Now, you may have a special gift of evangelism where God has given you a gift, and some people do, and the thing just, just drops upon you. You need to continue to develop it. I never had that gift. So you're not looking at somebody with the gift of evangelism. I'm looking at somebody who's just like most people when it comes to evangelism, but I always wanted to be able to do it. And now what happens is, it's an interesting thing. The more people you lead to the Lord, the more you have to lead to the Lord. You're never satisfied. And this is exactly the passion you see with, with, with Whitfield, with, with, uh, um, with Spurgeon. This is the passion. This is the passion that you see in, 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 uh, uh, in John Knox, in the preaching in the giving of the word of God. I mean, John Knox was like, I, I don't remember the exact thing, but he was like, he was like four foot 11. Small man. But this guy was just, he had a heart as big as a house. I mean, he just, he just walk in before kings and just proclaim the word of God. His daughter was the same way. And this guy went through so much. I mean, at one point he was, he was thrown into slavery and he was, he was, one of these oarsmen on a boat, you know, <laughs> where they just beat you into just, just row more, row more. I mean, th- what this guy went through, and he's just preaching the word of God. Can I, can I give up a night a week to share somebody, share the gospel with somebody? I mean, you know, I think about this thing, what people like John Knox went through, what people like Paul went through. George Whitfield, 13 times he crossed the Atlantic in the 1700s. I mean, that was a dangerous proposition. 
13 times he crossed the Atlantic preaching on each side of the Atlantic. I mean, he, he talked about, you know, for a month and a half, his, he never got out of his wet clothes on this, on this boat because the weather was so rough. For like a month and a half. He would preach on this boat. It, it talked about how other boats would come alongside his boat and they tie alongside going across the Atlantic together because he would stand on one boat and he'd be preaching to the people on the boat and the people on the other boat. I mean, what a heart. If he can do that, I mean, can't I sit on a Zoom call on a Thursday night at 8 p.m. for an hour and preach the gospel to somebody? I mean, this is simple. Now, I think technically I've crossed the Atlantic more times by Zoom, <laughs> preaching the gospel. It, it, it's so much easier today in the sense of how you can do this and what God has done. I urge you to share the word because Jesus never grows old. This, the word of God, the gospel message, I don't quote any philosophers. I don't, don't, don't have to say you know, any, any grand things. I just preach the simple gospel message. You say, well, what verses do you use? It's exactly like I'm telling you. It's not the methodology. It's the man, it's the woman behind the, the preaching. That's what it is. It's your heart. It's your heart. Where you wrestle before God. I have many times prayed, Lord, I'm old enough. Come on, I've, I've consumed enough resources on this earth. I've been here long enough, Lord. If you are not going to bring people through me, through my witness, take me home and raise up somebody else to do it. I've prayed this many times and I'm sincere about that. I mean, you, you guys are all young. You, you, you need the resources more than I do. And... and uh, um, Unless the Lord is going to bring people through me, I don't want to live anymore. I mean, I, I, I've published enough publications. I've written enough books. I've lectured in enough classrooms. I've traveled around the world enough. If you're not going to bring people through me, just take me home. Raise up somebody else to do this. You begin to pray that prayer like you mean it. You begin to get serious about the Lord. And watch what happens when you begin to speak about the Lord. Because God is interested in you and what's happening in your heart. And then he takes that and he transfers it through your speaking, through your message, through your passion. Because we have the most glorious message, which is Jesus Christ, where he died for our sins. He was buried and on the third day he rose from the dead. And that truth of the resurrection goes zinging right through to the hearts of the educated, of the uneducated, of the, of the children, of the old people. Again and again. I see people of all ages. Last week there was a guy, he's, he's in his late 70s or early 80s. He came to the Lord. Just through the, the preaching of the Word of God. Young people to old people. This message resonates because it's the message of truth that is already on your heart. Whether you say you're a believer in Christ or not, that message is already on your heart. So that when I speak to you about the Lord, I'm just calling you to confess what's already there. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. Blessed be Jesus. Blessed be the proclamation of the, the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, I pray 
for the unbelievers who have heard this message, that this very day they would get saved. Open up the door for that, Lord, this very day. Let Jesus be glorified in their lives this very day. Father, I pray that you would work in their lives to see a soul saved. And Father, I pray for the believers that they would take this seriously, that they would do all things for the sake of the gospel. They would do all things for the sake of the gospel. And then they would see power go forth. Father, use them, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. Father, thank you for sending your Son. Thank you for Jesus. He is the best, the best, the best in every way. So good, so kind, so righteous, so holy. He has lived a life with no sin. And he took on our sin. He took it upon himself. And he died on the cross. The wages that we deserved were death. And he took that death. And then he rose from the dead. And he lives forever. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Blessed be the name of Jesus. I offer this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.